Palm Sunday. If you turn your Bibles to John chapter 12, John 12, we'll pick up in verse 12, the Messiah's parade. Now, of course, most of you understand and most of you know, and many of you have read all of the companion passages that are contained uh, in your Bible regarding this event. It's contained in all four of the Gospels. And it is significantly different, really, between Luke and really the other three Gospels, because there seems to be a focus in the other three that's not in Luke's Gospel, and I think it's for a reason. I, I know that the Lord would have a special message for us this morning. In light of the things that are happening in our lives and moving in our lives, I think the first question that always comes to mind for most Christians is, is why did Jesus come? My time in ministry, I've studied these passages untold numbers of times, taught on them, same, untold numbers of times. I don't even know how many times. But I know that each time I look at them, there's always something that seems to pop out about the circumstance, the situation regarding the arrival of Jesus to Jerusalem. But when we think about why he came, there are 50 or more reasons that you could probably give for why Jesus came to Jerusalem. Ultimately, to save us from sin. Amen? To bring eternal life. Amen? To take care of the curse uh, that is death because of our sin. Amen? To pay the debt you couldn't pay. Amen? You, you see, you could go down the long, long list of theological reasons as to why Jesus came that day. And so, as he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, of course, for us this morning, it's the most joyous parade that's ever occurred, and I have no idea what's going on here with the slides. That is the weirdest thing on the face of the earth. I'm going to try while I'm talking to you to reset these, otherwise I'm going to do what I always do, which is to assume that Satan is alive and well. <laughs> you know, sometimes there's just no excuse. Well, guess what? Rather than distract you all with finger-wagging, it's been one of those weeks. <laughs> We love you, Kendall. As we think on this passage, as we ponder this passage, there's some very deep truths contained in it. Verse 12, and it begins this way, and then the next day, and remember that's referring back. We studied this passage some months ago, and we'll look at it in its entirety this morning. A great multitude that had come to the feast. Remember, it's the feast of Passover. It's that time of year. They're gathered together. This is one of the great feast days for the children of Israel. The population of Jerusalem has swollen probably in excess of two million people in the surrounding region. One of the largest gatherings of humankind at that time in the world would have been Jerusalem during Passover. The population of Rome was suggested to be even less than that. So Jerusalem would have swollen because of Passover, because of the temple. 
It would have been Herod's temple at that time that stood on the Temple Mount, and so it gleaming in the sun as you would have come up the Jericho Road from the Valley of Jordan, for where the river transits uh, its course through the great African Rift Valley. That valley extends all the way down to the center of Africa, and its terminus really is at the end of the Golan Heights near Mount Hermon. And so that Jericho Road there about halfway up the Jordan River Valley in modern-day uh, Israel would have been the direction that Jesus would have traveled up from. He's now come to visit Mary and Martha and, of course, raised Lazarus from the dead. That has already transpired. They are in Bethany at that point in time, next to the little hamlet of Bethpage. And that is maybe 15 to 30 minutes, depending on how fast you could walk, uh, from the top of the Mount of Olives, just slightly to the east. And along that Jericho Road, they would have traveled, and it would have transited over the back of the Mount of Olives. And as they reached the Mount of Olives, Jesus would have been looking down on Jerusalem to the Temple Mount, which would have stood to his left as he stared down from the Mount of Olives. There the court of the Gentiles to his right. And it was the next day. So Jesus has now spent the night at Mary and Martha's house, coming to the feast. And when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, remember that the word about Jesus was this. He had been traveling around the region of Galilee. That was the reason for the journey down the Jordan Valley, up the road to Jericho, to the top of the Mount of Olives, and thereby, as the disciples otherwise recorded, the descent from the Mount of Olives to the city of Jerusalem. It is downhill from there. Uphill to that point, but downhill from the top to the Temple Mount. When they heard that Jesus was coming, there were all kinds of expectant things that day. The Jewish religious leaders were thinking he was going to start some kind of ruckus. The Romans, the same thing. Many of them would have been looking for a miracle or two to be performed because they had heard the word of the things that had been happening through the ministry of Jesus for the preceding two and a half years. Jesus had been all over Judea. And so by now, many people had made up their minds about who Jesus was. Many people today are making up their mind about who Jesus is. Some people think he's a mythical figure. Some people think he's a joke. Some people, as we do, believe he is both Savior and Lord. Some people believe he's a prophet, as does Islam teach. Some people believe he is nothing more than a myth, a fable, a fairy tale in the minds of those who are patently religious. People are still making up their mind about why Jesus has come. And verse 13 continues on, And they took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Which is actually an Aramaic word. It has been transliterated, and when we use that term, it means to take from one language to another. Translation means to take it from 
generally one language into another language and actually make it into the new language. Transliteration, you take the original word and simply then incorporate it into the new language. So it's still an Aramaic word. It means roughly, God save us now. Praise to God, who is Savior. It goes on to quote from the 118th Psalm, which is the Hallel, the end of the Hallel. And so the Jewish people, this would have been the Egyptian Hallel. The remainder of the book of Psalms basically are Psalms of praise from that point on. But these five chapters, as we would call them, were the songs of praise of deliverance, and they were the ones that were used directly before Passover. These psalms would be spoken and shouted from the rooftops, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now remember what's on the cross of Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. You see, all of these things are playing together. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written. Now we know from the other gospel accounts that he didn't just find it. It didn't mysteriously appear. It didn't pop up out of the dirt. Uh, it, it was not, you know, something like a magic show from Las Vegas to where someone translated a donkey to next to him. He sent the disciples to go get this particular foal of a donkey. And in fact, there's great detail given about that experience that literally he sent his disciples, you're going to find a donkey tied outside. Very important for you to understand, a donkey would never be tied outside. That would be the most valuable possession that most people had during that day and time. It would have been inside, even at night, inside of their home, if necessary, to protect it. And so the fact that it's tied outside is very, very, very unusual. And so the disciples go, and there it is, the donkey and the foal of the donkey. Now, for those of you that have no agrarian background, you, you grew up here in Southern California, and the closest thing you know to wildlife are seagulls at the beach. Uh, you do not get on unbroken animals of any equine species. doesn't happen unless you like to see dirt very fast. Uh, you're likely to end up on the ground quite quickly. And when Jesus had found a young donkey, he sat on it as it is written. And this, of course, is from the book of Zechariah in the ninth chapter, the ninth verse, and it is prophetically speaking of the Lord Jesus some 500 plus years earlier. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Don't worry, Jewish people, children of Israel. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, it would be interesting enough if someone simply went and hijacked someone's donkey. But the fact that this is a foal, this is an unbroken foal of a donkey, is even stranger. Something that just simply wouldn't happen by accident. It's not one of those things that anyone would set out to do. And verse 16 goes on to say, And his disciples did not understand these things at first. I love this. This is John at his finest. John, as he authors his own gospel, rarely uh, speaks of himself. 
but he gives us little insights into who he is. What he's really trying to say is, I didn't get it. I didn't have a clue. Me and the rest of the guys were dumb as a box of hot rocks with regard to what was going on. We did not understand what was going on at this very moment. As much time as we spent with Jesus, our King, our Lord, our Savior, we missed it. And I love this because it takes a whole lot of the pressure off of us. If the disciples who literally were taught by Jesus, day in, day out, for the better part of three years, two and a half at least, could miss what Jesus had said to them personally, then you, you can kind of give yourself a little bit of slack when you maybe don't quite understand something that the Lord's doing in your life. Because the disciples didn't get some of the things that Jesus said. Now, it would be a little bit before they would be endued with the Holy Spirit. And so once that happened, their insight ometer went off a little bit greater. They had, they had the ability to understand things that they didn't understand before. But his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, anybody else find out you know a lot more about your walk with the Lord in hindsight. I do. I look back on things in my life and I go, oh, that's what you were doing. But sometimes when it's happening, you don't quite get that, right? You know, you look at the stuff going on in your life and you're like, Lord, what are you doing? I haven't got a clue. And then maybe a month, a year, two years, five years, ten years, in many cases, 20 years in some cases. In my case, I'm kind of dense, so 40 years later... Oh, that's what you're doing. That promise that you made to me at Forest Home when I was 15 years old, you're now bringing about in my life. You, you see, God doesn't work on our timeline. He's not even bound by time, actually. If He needs some more time, He needs to make more time. He invented time. That's why your Bible says, in the beginning. Because before that, there was no beginning. He created the beginning. He is the bang in the Big Bang. God spoke, and it was. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about Him, and that they had done these things to Him. You see, what he's really saying is, we should have known. We should have known. There was enough truth within the Old Testament that they should have known. These men were largely Jews. The disciples that hung around Jesus, at least 80-90% probably 95-99% Jewish believers. They had the whole Old Testament. Remember, 400 years before Matthew's Gospel, the end of the Old Testament authorship occurred with the book of Malachi. And so they had had the entire Old Testament as we know it for 400 years. 
The United States has only been a nation for 250. Think about it. The whole Old Testament and every messianic prophetic word spoken in it, at least 418 pieces, my view, 489 pieces of prophetic information speaking directly about the life, the times, the death, the burial, the crucifixion, everything in the Old Testament. It's all there. Including that death could not hold him, that he'd be raised. Including that he would be pierced, hands and feet. Including that he would be cut off in the middle of the week. All of those things are there in the Old Testament. It was when he was glorified. You imagine Easter morning from John or Peter's perspective. They're walking, they don't quite get it, and then all of a sudden the light goes on. The glory of the Lord is starting to spill out a little bit, and they're going, that's what you meant. I get it now. And therefore the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. You see, they already got a preview of what Jesus was going to do. There, can you imagine as Jesus comes from Bethany with Mary and Martha and the formerly dead Lazarus? Kind of like Prince. The artist formerly known as Prince. You know, I don't know what he is now. The, the, the dead guy formerly known as Lazarus is walking with them. He's like, weren't you dead? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I was dead. Really dead. Three days dead. Smelly, in fact. Your Bible says that, by the way. I like the King James. He stinketh. Can you imagine? And they're all sitting there going, Who's... Lazarus, is that you? No wonder they bore witness. These are the same people that had gone and mourned at his tomb. They're the same Mary and Martha that said, Jesus, if you'd only gotten here a little sooner. If you'd just shown up a day or so in advance, you could have prayed over Him, He would have never died. But the Lord, in a wonderful way, wanted to do a greater work, and that greater work was to raise Him from the dead. You see, the greater work very often in our lives is that the Lord raises us from the dead. Now, if you're still here and you haven't died yet, that would be figuratively speaking. Amen? He, he raises us out of that dead old life into a new life. Amen? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Amen? And that life that I now live, I live because of Him. We are raised. We are being transformed. Our minds are being renewed. Amen? We are being transformed day to day into the image of Him. Amen? That's an ongoing process. That's why I can tell you no Christian is complete until he takes his last breath. Her last breath. Until we exit stage left off of earth, either through the rapture or a natural, what we would call, death process. Until that happens... 
You're going to still be here for a while, and you're still going to make mistakes. And so Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to bear witness. And for this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. Notice they call it a sign. It wasn't just a miracle. He was trying to say something. Connie and I were driving down California Street yesterday, and if you notice down on Tippecanoe in California, they're tearing out all the, the trees and stuff along the freeway. They're getting ready to widen out the freeway and make a new off-ramp and stuff. And there was a, there was a homeless guy, and all it said on his sign was, Bad at words. <laughs> that's it. That, that's it. But you know what? That bore witness, didn't it? Those words said something. Even though they were different than the other guy who said, we'll work for beer. You know what I'm saying? His words said something. His action said something. As he was walking with the sign behind him, they said something. Jesus' life said something. He was speaking And he was speaking very clearly. The Pharisees therefore said amongst themselves, verse 19 says, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. They were mocking him. said, look at this. This is an are you kidding me moment. From the Pharisees' perspective, from the Sanhedrin's perspective, from those who would be involved in his trial's perspective, they're like, this is what you got? This is your parade? A donkey? Somebody else's clothes on it? A bunch of people whose cumulative IQ is eight? I'm given... Some of the disciples had one, some had none. They were not the sharpest tools in the shed, amen? They're they're not the ones you'd pull out, you know, hey, could you go talk to John? He's got it all wired. And yet, mockingly they say, look, (laughs) the world has gone after him. He's accomplishing nothing. Look, the world's gone after him. This was a mocking. You see, as they began to make the grand entrance to Jerusalem, this was the only public demonstration that Jesus allowed over his over his life. But I guarantee you, the next time the king comes, there won't be anybody who gets it wrong. Everybody will know the next time. There were three basic groups of people that were used here. The Passover visitors, those who were visiting Jerusalem for the sake of Passover. The local people, those are the ones from Bethany and Bethpage, the outskirts of Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, who knew what Jesus had done. They'd been there at the raising of Lazarus back in chapter 11 of John's Gospel. And then the religious leaders that had been kind of dealing with the outfall of Jesus really speaking new truths setting forth the promise of the kingdom that is to come. And so these groups of people were all there. 
Every time they had one of these feasts, new things would occur. They'd, they'd pop up and new people would gather. A few things to ponder this morning. What did this event mean to Jesus? What did it mean from his perspective? The main thing that we take from Jesus' perspective is, this was all planned out long time ago in heaven. This was no accident. This wasn't Jesus got really hungry and there was food in Jerusalem. This wasn't the disciples had no place to lay their head, neither did Jesus. We want to go to the city to where at least there'll be some other people. This was no accidental happenstance meeting. And in fact, the prophet Jeremiah, speaking of Jerusalem in Jeremiah chapter 4, said this would happen. Zechariah in chapter 9 of the book of Zechariah said that these things would happen. That's why you see that quotation from the book of Zechariah. This wasn't something that was an accident. This parade was very well mapped out. You see, the Jewish people were thinking one thing, the Romans were thinking something else, and the common folks were thinking yet another set of thoughts. It's the same way that the world functions today. People can see the exact same things and come to very different conclusions. Amen? The religious leaders, you kind of get how they're thinking. Well, this is, this is absurd. This is ridiculous. What a joke. And I believe that's largely the, the Romans' position, too. You see, the common people, they have one opinion. The Romans have an opinion. The Jewish religious leaders have an opinion. Jesus, I know, knew what was going on. He knew exactly why he was going to Jerusalem. From the Roman perspective, we actually don't have anything recorded about what the Romans were thinking at this point in time. But I guarantee you they were thinking at this time. Because they were in charge. That's why Pilate was actually in Jerusalem. That's why there was a station of the Praetorian Guard, the Imperial Guard, that was stationed in the Antonio Fortress, that Pilate was there as a representative of Rome. He represented Roman rule. The Roman eagle stood over that Praetorian palace. There would have been a very large presence of Roman troops at that time. And we know that there were significant Roman soldiers. And in fact, that number would grow over the next 30 years after this event, culminating with the destruction of Jerusalem eventually. But from the Roman perspective, because the people are shouting Hosanna, because Jesus is riding now down the Mount of Olives, so the elevated place of the Mount of Olives and down to the city of Jerusalem, about 400 feet difference in elevation. So Jesus is winding his way down past the Garden of Gethsemane where he will spend some significant time in the coming week. As he's winding over to the Temple Mount, by the time he gets there, he's only transited maybe a half of a mile. And the Romans are watching this because the Antonia Fortress is just across the Gihon Valley. And so as they're watching, they can see this whole thing unfold before them. They're actually looking up at the event. You can imagine them sitting inside of the walled fortress going, This is nuts! These people have lost their cumulative minds. Have they never seen a real parade? Don't they know what a Roman triumph actually... This is the best... They, this is their king? 
they're probably laughing, telling jokes. They're looking up at the... It's kind of like comparing the, the Running Springs 4th of July parade to the Rose Parade. You, you, get the, you, you get the difference? Not mocking here, just saying there's a difference, amen? One cost $500 million to put on, one cost $5 to put on. <laughs> One, the biggest float, is a fire truck. The other one is a 110-foot-long flower-covered dragon. That's what they're thinking. This is it? This is the emperor? This is the king? The Roman Emperor Trajan, if you happen to have National Geographic, you'll see in this last issue of National Geographic, there's actually a piece in there on Trajan's column, which stands to this day. In Rome, you can go there, you can actually see it, and on the, the frescoes, these carved frescoes that travel around this column all the way to the top. There are over 2,600 scenes on that column, and as you travel up, it's all of his exploits in conquering uh, the, the province of, of Dacia, and there that is modern-day Romania. And it said in the Roman triumph, as he came back after the final battle of defeating of this fierce warrior enemy, the triumphal parade back into Rome was over three miles long, just with troops, that they displayed what would be, in essence, about a half a trillion dollars in today's value of treasure. The enemies all stripped naked and in the midst of Roman guards humiliated. You see, that was the Roman perception. The Roman perception is, if this is all your king can do, you guys are in trouble. What did it mean to the nation of Israel? You see, they were hoping for victory. They were hoping for the Prince of Peace. They understood that their Bible said that the government would one day, as Isaiah 9 says, be upon the Messiah's shoulder and his kingdom would be a prince, he would be a prince that would be a peaceable prince. And so they were expecting something big to happen. But what was about to happen was not the big thing they were expecting. No wonder Jesus, as he got to the Mount of Olives, Luke recorded for us, remember? When he got to the Mount of Olives, he wept. He looked down, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. You who kills the prophets. I would so many times that you would come unto me, and yet you would not. Your enemies are going to surround you. They're going to close you in. They're going to come around you. You're going to be trapped. Your children are going to die because you would not turn. You would not believe. He saw what lies ahead yet. What's going on in the Middle East right now is nothing short of staggering when you look at it in light of Scripture. The amount of chaos that is ensuing there in the various Arab nations that 
were once fairly stable, full-on war in Yemen, we're still working. It has been 12 years that we've been trying to come up with a nuclear arms agreement with Iran. And we are not one step closer today. Matter of fact, we're further away. And the Iranians have boldly said they will not submit to instantaneous snap inspections of their nuclear facilities, which means it can't be verified that they're keeping any of the agreements. You read your Bible, what's going to happen? One day there's going to be a coalition of Arab nations that will rise up against Israel. Aided and abetted, joined, and actually put together by the Russians. Look at what's happening in Russia. Revelation 19 says the next time Israel sees its king, the scene's going to be a little different than this one. It says there in verse 11 of Revelation 19, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. At this point, Jesus is not judging, he's not making war. Amen? But when he comes back, that's exactly what he's going to do. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself, and he was clothed in a robe dipped in blood. He will have fought the battle of Armageddon himself. And his name is called the Word of God, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, and the Word was God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, that's you and me, coming back with the Lord. The next time he comes back, nobody's going to miss that he is king of the whole universe. And he's going to come in glory, in triumph. And you talk about a triumphal parade, it's going to include every saint that has ever lived. Amen? And he's coming back to rule and reign. That passage goes on to say, with a rod of iron over the nation of Israel, they will no longer be allowed to be wayward. Matter of fact, there will have been 144,000 witnesses on the face of the earth that will have been sharing the gospel everywhere they go to the point of martyrdom. You see, his first parade was pretty funky. His second one, will be the most glorious event in the history of the world. Nobody will miss the second one. No wonder Luke in chapter 24 is going to go on to tell us, Jesus spoke to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. You should have known. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into His glory? You see, until He enters into His glory, He can't come back in glory. Amen? That is the plan. He's coming back. Some teachers hold that there were two messiahs, which is absolutely ridiculous. One that would suffer and one that would reign. Read the book of Isaiah. He is a suffering servant that one day will reign. Matter of fact, your Bible goes on to say that when you see him, 
he will be imprinted with that love that he has for us because the palms of his hands will still bear the scars of the cross. He is our king who suffered for us. As the people gather around this whole scene, sometimes it's hard to see what God is doing, but sometimes he's at work in the greatest way when we don't know what he's doing. For many of us, we, we look at our lives as though you know, we're going to get a, a manual someday. Now, we live in a day and time where most everything is electronic, thank the Lord. Because I, I, I just got a printed book for my cell phone. That thing has 530 pages. My cell phone has 530 pages of information. It's not even worth reading the 530 pages of information for the value the phone has. But see, God doesn't give us everything. Have you ever tried to read, like some of you have smart watches? You ever read the little manual that comes with those things? After about page 12, you're completely on brain dead overload, right? Now, if that's true about a watch or that's true about a cell phone, can you imagine if the Lord told you everything that's going to go on in your life ahead of time, you'd be doing nothing but reading books. Now, reading books are good. I like to read books. But that's all you'd be doing. You'd be surrounded by piles and piles and piles and piles and piles of books. Electronic files. You'd have PDFs coming out your ears about what's going on in your life. And that's where faith comes in. The disciples needed faith to trust the Lord Jesus, that this parade that he was engaging in had a purpose and a reason. And it did. It was exactly what he needed to do. It's what was set out before he ever came to this earth. And so verse 16 to the end of the chapter gives us three very peculiar views. First, his disciples, they didn't understand these things. They got it in hindsight. We have to remember that behind everything that's going on in the entire universe is the mighty hand of God shaping the destiny of all of mankind. He hadn't fallen off the throne. He didn't all of a sudden, you know, just, wow, lost every... Man, poor people in running springs. It dropped them again. Your own personal problems. I know I have thought this way in my life. It's like, God, don't you see what I'm going through? Don't you know what's happening with me? I almost talk to him like he's somehow lost track of where I am. Not so. Not remotely true. Matter of fact, the exact opposite is true. He knows exactly where you are. He knows where I am. He knows where we are. And he knows what's best. And what he allows into our lives. Ultimately, your Bible says in Romans 8.28 works together for the good for those who love God and are the called according to His purposes. So if you're here and you love God, everything in your life, one day, though through hindsight, you may only have the way that, that may be the only way that you're going to find these things out. Looking back on what God allowed in your life, you're going to go, ah, that's what you did. And that's why you did it. 
That was the disciples. They just didn't know. And the people, they were there for yet a different reason. They looked at all these things. They're like, wow, maybe he's going to do another miracle. They were looking for something very spectacular. And they weren't going to see it. Matter of fact, they were going to see the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, die within the week. God doesn't check in with me. He doesn't ask me what what I think he should do. I don't know if any of you get a phone call from God in the morning. I don't. God does not dial me up and go, Jeff, what do you think about this? He does what he wants to do. And then from the Jewish perspective, of course, the Pharisees, basically, they said, look, (laughs) the world's going after him. That's crazy. This goofy Messiah on the back of a donkey, they're going after him? can show you how blind religion can be. How absolutely blind we can be in our religious perceptions of things. We've probably all been guilty of it at times, of maybe judging that one person that we thought would never be saved, and yet does. That, that one person that maybe you thought would never be used in that way, and they are. That situation in your life that you thought would never unfold the way it did. You see, the Lord is worthy of our worship. The Lord is worthy that we would shout glory to God in the highest. You see, previously, the angels had said, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Amen? Toward all men. And yet Jesus said pretty much the opposite, that in this world you will have tribulation. You know why? Because there's a little gap in there of currently about 2,000 years where the Lord's working out all of those things that work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to His purposes. That's where we are right now. But you can also trust that He who began that good work in you is faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. And what He said about the end is also true. There, as your Bible finishes... Revelation chapter 3, it's regarding the church at Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. In verse 10 it says there, because you have kept my command to persevere. we got to do some persevering yet. Amen? Still some persevering for us to do. That's not a negative word, by the way. Some people look at it like, okay, we'll do it. No, it means... Picking up your cross and following Jesus, it also means having the joy of the Lord be your strength. Amen? And the peace of God that guards your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And walking in faith and not by sight so that you're not deceived. It means that you are right now, because the Lord is in you, light to this world that desperately needs Jesus. We need to carry on. And I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. You see, you're not going to go through tribulation snatched away by force you're not going to be tested like the rest on this earth so if nothing else you can look forward to that I'm pretty happy about not going through a tribulation personally I'm also really happy about going home to heaven one day now I'd kind of prefer that the Lord would come and get all of us at once that would be much nicer than one at a time 
But I know this, one day heaven. And I know once we get there, we're coming back with him. And nobody's going to miss that event. Amen? Would you pray? Father, we thank you for this time this morning. And again, we are so grateful that you saddled up that donkey and you rode into Jerusalem to complete that work which you had begun some 32 and a half years earlier. Lord, that you did go to the cross and you did give your life. And so, Lord, this week as we celebrate those events, Lord, that have set us free from the bondage of sin and death, we pray that you would just wrap your arms around us, that you would bless us, that you would anoint us, that you would love on us, Lord. Fill us with your Spirit. Cause us to remember that we have all been put on this earth for a purpose, that you have great plans for us as your church. Bless us, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.